And now I would like to welcome today's speaker, Dr. Scott Stern, Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago, where he has served as co-course director of clinical pathophysiology and therapeutics since 2002 as a leader in education at the institution there. He's also lead author of the textbook, Symptom to Diagnosis, an evidence-based guide for which he received the Society of General Medicine National Award for Scholarship in Medical Education. Utilizing an innovative approach to help students and residents master diagnostic reasoning, each chapter addresses a common complaint or disorder and organizes a systematic approach. Together with colleague and co-author, Dr. Adam Sifu, they've created the S2D podcast series. Currently, he is working with the New England Journal of Medicine Healer Project to help create interactive online cases to teach these approaches. We're absolutely delighted to welcome uh, this clinical master and clinician educator. Thank you, Dr. Stern, for joining us today. I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you very much for that um, kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to talk about this topic. It's about as near and dear to my heart as anything except for my family. So let's get started. Um, I titled the talk, Diagnostic Reasoning, Let's Make and Both Be Better Doctors. You, you mentioned that part of the lecture series was about quality outcomes. And a key part of a quality outcome is making the right diagnosis because it is the platform. It is the very base of everything we do for a patient. We can't prognosticate or treat them properly if we don't know what they have. So let's launch. Um, so um, interestingly, my slide didn't advance. Can we once, there it goes. Um, so my outline for this morning is I'm gonna briefly show you two cases to get you thinking. If you wanna take out a pencil and paper, that would be great. Um, I'm then gonna spend maybe five minutes or maybe five to 10 minutes talking a little bit about background and theory so you understand a little bit about the nature of the problem. And then we're gonna turn our attention to how we evaluate one particular symptom what the patients have that I'm going to present to you. And then having learned that approach, we're going to apply it to the patients. And um, if we have time, we'll talk about what Adam and I like to call pearls and pitfalls, but we'll see how the timing goes. So imagine you're in the emergency room and you're seeing, uh, you pick up a chart on a patient and an 18 year old is brought in and the story is he passed out while he was playing basketball. Um, he did recover promptly without intervention, but he's brought in to be evaluated by you. And you know, you might think to yourself, hmm, what does he have? Take a second there to just think about that. You know, do you have any idea? Um, hopefully when he's in the emergency room, he's no longer with his face down on the floor. Um, maybe you get nervous and you say, well, that's, I don't really want to evaluate that particular patient. I'll go to the room next door. And in the room next door, a little touchy, uh, uh, is a 45 year old man who lost consciousness sitting at the movies. He's also brought to the emergency room by ambulance for evaluation. And now you're like, uh oh. <laughs> I don't like either of these choices. So what are you going to do? I don't know. Um, so I'm getting a little bit of echo. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes, we are hearing you fine. Thank you. Great. So do you know what they have? What's the differential diagnosis when someone loses consciousness? What matters? What history, physical and labs would you do? And um, how would you approach uh, such patients? So um, let's talk a little bit before we launch into the specifics of this, of how, of what the background is for diagnostic error. So obviously we need to get it right, but the fact of the matter is that diagnostic error is common, that the scary truth is that clinicians are often wrong. So here's some data. So the Institute of Medicine came out in 2015 on a report called Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare. And actually, I was really happy to see this because I thought that there was a big problem for a long time. And I was happy that somebody else was saying that there's a big problem. I mean, it occurred to me was when I was a medical student, I didn't think I was trained very well to learn how to diagnose folks. But I'll here's what I found. No echo. So, so he'll be annoyed that the rest of us, it's fine. We'll have a good presentation for you to argue. Sorry to interrupt myself, but um, let's see. Okay. So, um, uh, maybe someone's talking, maybe if they could mute. Um, diagnostic error, what they reported was that diagnostic errors are a significant contributor to patient harm and have received too little attention. And they estimated shockingly that there's up to 12 million people a year in the US that are misdiagnosed, uh, by, uh, that are misdiagnosed and sometimes with devastating consequences. The estimated cost is 100, over $100 billion um, and 
So one can imagine this is a big problem. If you thought that we were doing this well, um, we're not doing it well. So why the errors? There's actually a lot of reasons, and I don't have time in our lecture today to talk about all of them, um, but they include both cognitive issues that we use and educational flaws in our system, frankly. Um, but that's another talk. I did want to focus, though, on one particular reason why we have these errors, which is fa faculty model primarily system one thinking. What is system one thinking? Let me give you an example. If I ask you, what's this car? What's the model? I bet you like at least all the guys and many of the people in the room know that that's a Corvette, right? What's the model of this car? Well, it doesn't take the rocket scientists. You see a million of these around, that's a Prius. What's this car? And you probably have no idea and neither do I. And so that system one thinking, when you recognize something fast, it's called fast thinking. It uses pattern recognition. It has certain advantages, it's fast, and it presents very low cognitive load. I mean, you either knew what the Corvette and the Prius were or you didn't. The disadvantage is when you don't. So when we're talking about diagnostic reasoning, fast thinking is gonna fail when you see diseases you haven't seen before because you don't recognize them. It's also gonna fail when someone presents with a disease that you have seen before, but they're presenting atypically. And this happens all the time is what the literature says. People present in myriad of ways. Um, it's prone to error, it tends to be biased by what you saw last week. So if you saw a case of BPPV last week and someone comes in with vertigo, you're gonna think of BPPV again. Um, and it requires years of experience. So the older we get, the more we use system one because we have this large repertoire of disease and illness scripts in our head and we apply it, that doesn't help a lot when you're still learning medicine and you, know, you have less years under your belt than all my gray hair would suggest that I have. It tends to promote an approach that uh, one of my colleagues, Joe Rensick, calls the hunt and peck approach, which I really like, chickens hunting and pecking. So what is that? So here's what people typically do. They ask the patients to describe the symptom, and then they see if they recognize that pattern. They also think about must not miss hypotheses. And doing all that, they generate a bunch of hypotheses. They test them, they interpret them, and if they're lucky, they make the diagnosis and they're done. That's great. What if not? If not, there's this laundry list of possibilities and they really don't know where to start. So like a chicken, they start <laughs> hunting and pecking around. So they say, maybe it's disease A or C and they start doing some tests and they don't make the diagnosis. And they say, well, maybe it was E. No, it's not E. And they go to H and I and so on and so forth until they either stumble on the diagnosis or they give up. We do need a new paradigm. So we need to incorporate something called system two thinking, which is what's called slow thinking. And this uses mental constructs to consciously solve a problem. It does present a larger cognitive load because you have to remember what that construct is, but it's exceptionally helpful when system one fails. The trouble is it's rarely taught. Why is it rarely taught? Because most of the time uh, students and residents are with attendings, we've been doing this for years and years, and we actually use system one thinking a lot because we recognize systems. And many people can't articulate their system two thinking very well because it's very far recessed in their mind. The optimal approach to diagnosing patients is actually to use both system one and system two. So I would recommend that you think about this paradigm, not just for loss of consciousness, but for all sorts of things. So what's a new paradigm here? We still would do what you've always done. We still will get the data, the history, the physical, the labs, see if we recognize that pattern, make our hypotheses, consider must not miss hypotheses, test, and if we make the diagnosis, great. But if not, instead of hunting and pecking around, we can use pivotal concepts to limit a differential into various groups that we could focus on, subgroups, if you will, of the entire differential. What are pivotal concepts? Pivotal concepts are features of the history, physical, and lab that reliably segregate that very large differential diagnosis into smaller, more manageable subsets that you can evaluate. So then you can identify one of those subsets. That's great, now I'm down to a third of the differential I was before. And you can take that limited differential and look at each one of those diseases and see if the patient has risk factors for each one of those, associated symptoms of them or signs, and use that information to then rank those remaining hypotheses and tests. Obviously, if they have a lot of symptoms and signs of a particular disease or risk factors for it, you're gonna rank it higher. And if they don't, you're gonna rank it lower. 
So you might say, OK, well, this is a lot of talk and who knows if this works? Well, we've actually studied this. We did a multi-center randomized controlled trial of medical students in eight schools that were randomized to either this approach, which we call the symptom to diagnosis approach or traditional training. Uh, and we evaluated in their impact on their ability to diagnose um, computer-based avatars on cases they hadn't seen before. Could they extrapolate these processes to evaluate new um, diseases? Here's what we found. So um, at baseline, we tested students on the computer-based avatars and 65% of them got the correct diagnosis. We then trained them for one day. We gave them a lecture that was a symptom to basis, symptom to diagnosis type approach. We had them do a couple cases and then we gave them a new case on abdominal pain they hadn't seen before. The post-intervention correct diagnosis group went from 65% to 92% a 27% increase with one day of training in the correct diagnosis or a number needed to treat, <laughs> it's the number needed to train, of 3.7 students to get to prevent one incorrect diagnosis. We did it for another symptom as well. We did it for loss of consciousness. Pretty dismal results at the start. Loss of consciousness is complicated and if you don't have an approach, it's tough to diagnose and students got the correct diagnosis only 17% of the time at baseline. With one day of training that improved to 49%, still a long way to go, but still a 32% improvement in the correct diagnosis with one day of training. So remarkable results. So with that as a background, how would we use that particular paradigm to approach loss of consciousness? Let's talk about that. So think for yourself for a minute. What's the differential diagnosis for loss of consciousness? Just you, I hope you took out a pencil and paper, but if not, think in your head. You know, what will be some of the causes you might think about? I'm going to give you 15 seconds to think about that. Should probably watch my clock because when you're waiting, 15 seconds seems like five minutes. <laughs> All right. So maybe it's some ideas. Here's a list that's commonly out there a lot of causes for loss of consciousness and you might feel a lot like this like oh, i just can't manage this right and then you have to think about okay what history are you going to take and there's a lot of possibilities you might ask them about bleeding you might ask them about chest pain diarrhea shortness of breath headache trauma you might ask them if they were anxious if they were drinking if they were using drugs what do you remember do you have diabetes heart disease oh my goodness there's a lot you could ask them and if you're not organized boy you can be lost right what do you want on exam? Do you want vital signs, orthostatic vital signs, you know, and so on and so forth. And you can, there's again a lot here. What tests do you want? Well, these are all the tests that in theory in any particular patient, some of these might be indicated, but they're all, you know, and so you might pick a subset. Maybe you say, well, look, I don't really know. I'm ordering all of them. I'm going to make sure I don't make a diagnostic error. Well, you'll probably be kicked out of the healthcare system that you're in because the total cost without even admission uh, for all of those tests would be over $50,000. So we obviously need an approach. We need to be able to choose wisely. So what's the paradigm we can use then for loss of consciousness? What are the pivotal points that will help us to focus the differential? And there's actually two. The first one is to distinguish whether the patient's syncope or not. And I'm going to come back to this in a minute. And the second one is in the subset of patients with syncope to determine whether or not it was cardiac syncope, reflex syncope, or orthostatic syncope. Why bother? You bother because each one of those has its own distinct differential. And if you can figure out which group you're in, for instance, cardiac syncope, you can then focus on that smaller subset of possibilities. Was it heart block, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, pulmonary embolism, six sinus syndrome, ventricular tachycardia, or so on. Or if it was non-syncope, then you could focus on these possibilities, hypoglycemia, intoxication, seizure, subarachnoid hemorrhage, or trauma. So it's very useful. And then the question becomes, well, how do you separate out those groups? And it's actually not very hard. Let me show you how to do that. That first pivotal point was to distinguish syncope from non-syncope. And the key concept here is actually that syncope is not synonymous with transient loss of consciousness. For decades, they've been used synonymously, but the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology in 2019 was very good about making this distinction. And when they refer to syncope, they're saying it's just one mechanism of transient loss of consciousness. And it's when that transient loss of consciousness is due to global cerebral hypoperfusion, no blood flow to the brain. 
and that's almost always from hypotension. Because of that, it has certain characteristic features. If you block blood flow to the brain, then people pass out right away. So it tends to be an abrupt onset. There's another feature of this, which is it's short in duration. Why is syncope short in duration? It's short in duration because if you block blood flow to the brain for a long period of time, the person doesn't present with transient loss of consciousness, they die, or they present with sudden cardiac death. So either that blood flow gets restored to their brain quickly and then they wake up quickly without anything, or it doesn't get restored and then they present with sudden cardiac death, which means we can use these three features to distinguish syncope from non-syncope. Was it abrupt? Was it short in duration? And was there spontaneous unaided recovery? Now, short in duration, let's just talk about that for a minute. Nobody puts on a stopwatch, right? When you're passing out. Oh, I think we'll pass out. I'm going to see how long this takes. And clicks it, and then when they wake up, okay, all done. But they can give you a sense by telling you what they remember of how long they were out. You know, if they say, I wasn't feeling well, I went down, and the next thing I know, the person next to me was jumping up and down, and they were calling for help, you would have a feeling that not much time had expired. If, on the other hand, the next thing they remember is being at the hospital or in the ambulance, that means a fair amount of time expired because all those resources had to be mobilized. And so with a very simple history of what you remember, you can often figure out whether you're dealing with syncope or non-syncope. All right, so we can ask those questions. Was it sudden? Was it brief? Did they recover without intervention? If the answer is no, it's not syncope. And we can focus then on non-syncopal causes. That's pretty simple, right? That's amazing. I mean, we, we cut down that differential diagnosis by three quarters in a couple of questions. If on the other hand, the answer was yes, then we know we're dealing with syncope and not we can get rid of the non-syncopal causes. And we have to go to our, our second pivotal point, which is how do we figure out what type of syncope it is so we can figure out which subgroup to focus on. So how would we know that someone had orthostatic syncope? Orthostatic syncope is typically what people have or the way it presents is that patients stand up and they pass out. They stand up, they can't maintain their blood pressure and they fall down. And if you see them shortly thereafter for evaluation, they often have profound orthostatic hypotension on exam. So these features would point to orthostatic syncope and you could evaluate patients for whether they were dehydrated, whether they were hemorrhaging, whether they were on some medication that caused it or whether they had some autonomic disease that was causing it. How do we know about reflex syncope? Well, the most common cause of reflex syncope is basal syncope. That just has a very characteristic uh, presentation. That presentation is the person is standing still, not walking, not running, standing still for a long period of time, which causes venous pooling in the legs. The venous pooling in the legs triggers the vagal reflex. The patient often feels a little queasy, a little nauseated, a little bit of abdominal discomfort, and then they go down. Somebody with that story and no history of cardiac disease, you'd make the assumption that they had basal syncope as long as their ECG was normal. Now let's turn to cardiac syncope. Cardiac syncope you have to figure out if someone has, because if you don't figure it out, their risk of dying is much greater because whatever caused them to lose their blood pressure and lose blood flow to their brain this time could go on longer next time and kill them. So one thing I didn't appreciate early in my training was that you could have arrhythmias like AV block, six sinus syndrome or ventricular tachycardia that could be brief, cause someone to pass out, and then the arrhythmia could abort on its own. The patient wakes up and shows up in the emergency room in normal sinus rhythm. But next time it might not abort and they might die. So we have to figure out who is cardiac syncope. So who is that? What are the clues? Well, there's really four types of clues. One. If somebody is syncope on exertion, you have to assume it's cardiac. That's not vasovagal and it's not orthostatic. And if they have syncope while they're supine laying down, the same thing is true. If they have cardiac disease or cardiac signs like S3 Gallup, JVD, or symptoms, you better assume it's cardiac. Now, it's not impossible for someone with cardiac disease to have orthostatic syncope, but you better assume that if they have cardiac disease, it's cardiac syncope because you see, Cardiac disease is the substrate for having a lot of arrhythmias. It's often the abnormal heart that's been scarred and damaged that sets someone up for ventricular tachycardia. And so if you hear cardiac disease, you need to assume it's cardiac syncope. Another interesting clue I realized recently is if you decide, boy, it wasn't reflex and it wasn't orthostatic, even if you have no other clues, you better assume it's cardiac because there's only three categories and it has to be one of the three. 
maybe this is the patient's first presentation of cardiac disease and they don't have any idea that they have cardiac disease. And finally, if they have an abnormal ECG, you should assume that it's cardiac syncope. So by looking at these clues, we can then decide what group that patient is in and then focus on the appropriate differential diagnosis. So if you think about our paradigm, our paradigm was to use these pivotal concepts to figure out what group we're in. And then once we're in a group, we can take that small number of diseases and ask the patients, do they have risk factors, symptoms, or signs, and then use that information to rank and test. So with that as background, let's return to our cases. So our first case was an 18-year-old who passed out suddenly while playing basketball. He recovers promptly on the court without intervention and is brought to the emergency room. He remembers waking up with his teammates around. He thinks he was only out for being about a minute. He denies being confused when he woke up. So the first question is, was that syncope or not? Was it abrupt in onset? Was it short in duration? And was there spontaneous unaided recovery? And their answer to that was, it was that all those were true, three out of three. And so it was syncope. What next? What next is to figure out what type of syncope this was. Was it cardiac? Was it reflex? Was it orthostatic? What do you think? He's running down the court and he passes out. Does that sound like reflex syncope to you? Does that sound like orthostatic syncope to you? Or rather, is it syncope with exertion? And it is syncope with exertion and it doesn't sound like reflex. It's not orthostatic. So this is cardiac syncope. Is syncope on exertion? Um, and um, it's not reflex or cardiac. And when you take his history, now what you're going to do is think about the differential diagnosis that's down here, right? Um, and um, his symptoms occur while he's running, his vital signs were normal, and he also had a grade one systolic murmur at the left sternal border. Hmm. So we have to integrate that information and think about these diseases here. Is this AV block? Is it hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Is it pulmonary embolism? Is it six sign syndrome? Is it ventricular tachycardia or WPW? And we can now use that and explore that limited differential. So in your mind, you would have this list that's shorter differential in your mind. If you were to plot it out, you could say, okay, here are the diseases that I'm still thinking of. Here are the, we're gonna look for risk factors, symptoms, and signs. So if you were in a room with a patient like this, you'd say, okay, what might be some signs of aortic stenosis? And you would know. You would think, oh, I'm listening for a very loud murmur at the right upper sternal border. Um, you might think about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and think about what signs you might find there, like a murmur at the left sternal border. You could think about risk factors for pulmonary embolism. And in your head, you could go through and look for these risk factors, symptoms, and signs to see what the patient had. I filled that table out for you, and I'm not going to read this whole table, but if we think about what he had, he had a loud systolic murmur, which would point to either aortic stenosis or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It was actually at the right sternal at the uh, right sternal border, which would point to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I'm sorry, the left sternal border, which would point to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and his young age would certainly fit with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy more than aortic stenosis. So we had this long list of tests that we might have ordered. Turns out, really, we need one test, and I bet you know what it is if you think about it. Just by being systematic, you could decide, okay, this was an echocardiogram, that I need an echocardiogram. And if you did, you would find a confirmed hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. He had implantable defibrillator placed to treat what was probably ventricular tachycardia, which is an associated complication of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and he did well at follow-up. Now, maybe you said that was easy. I could have done that without all of that because I recognized, I used illness script recognition, pattern system one thinking. I knew what that was from the start. Let's turn to the second case. The second case is a 45-year-old man who's brought in having lost consciousness sitting at the movies. He's brought to the emergency room by, uh, for evaluation. And do you recognize this one? I suspect not. This is not so easy. Um, the patient remembers being at the movie theaters and then nothing until he arrives at the hospital. So he doesn't remember being carried out in the ambulance. He doesn't remember getting loaded into the ambulance. So I would ask you, was this syncope or not? Was it abrupt in onset? Well, probably. Was it short in duration? Well, it doesn't sound like it to me. He didn't wake up right away. I mean, typically with syncope, you wake up within a minute. And he's out, at least really not with it for a long period of time. So we would say this is not syncope, and we'd have to evaluate those causes. We could get rid of all the syncopal causes and now focus on was this hypoglycemia? Was it an intoxication? 
Was it seizure? Did he have a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Did he have trauma? Notice the questions I'm going to ask now are completely different than before. We could again go to our paradigm and set up a table and think about the risk factor symptoms and signs for each one of those. So if we were to map it out, here on the left-hand column is this limited differential diagnosis that we've focused on by using pivotal points. We could say risk factors. Hey, did, as far as you know, if you hit your head, <laughs> any associated symptoms, you have a headache. Um, hypoglycemia, what's the risk factor for hypoglycemia? Well, hopefully you know, almost all patients who are hypoglycemic are diabetics who are on glucose-lowering medication. Hypoglycemia from other causes is exceptionally rare. We can certainly ask them about intoxication, drinking, and uh, drug use. For subarachnoid hemorrhage, we might ask them if he's got a headache or if he's got any neurological symptoms like weakness. And for seizure, we could look for tongue biting, we could look for incontinence, we could look for tonic-clonic activity, although if we have time later, I can tell you that's a difficult um, piece of information to tease out. So I filled out this table for us, and what do we find? We find he has no history of diabetes, so we could take hypoglycemia pretty much off the list. He denies having been drinking, so intoxication is unlikely, or using drugs, right? And his vital signs, cardiac and neurological exam are, are all normal, okay? So no headache, no neurological symptoms, no trauma, no hypoglycemia, no intoxication. What does that make most likely? It makes most likely seizures, even though we don't know anything about whether it was shaking or having tonic-clonic activity and so on. So given that, the point I would make here is on post-ictal confusion. So it turns out that 95% of the time when people have a generalized seizure which causes loss of consciousness, they have a post-ictal period. So if somebody tells you they lost consciousness and they don't remember anything for like the next half hour to an hour, you really have to think about a seizure for that patient. So given all that, what test would you want for this patient? And I bet you're thinking already about an EEG. And if you're thinking about an EEG and person having a seizure, what else might you want? You might want to know why you had the seizure because adults don't usually present with idiopathic epilepsy. You need to think, is there something structurally wrong in the brain? And you'd also want to image his head. So the two tests you'd want to order are those two. And if you did, you found that this patient was presenting was a seizure that was precipitated by a new tumor, a glioblastoma multiforme, and had to be um, treated and passed away. So what's my summary of all this? I think you can use pivotal points for most symptoms. Uh, and in, in uh, loss of consciousness, the first one is to distinguish syncope from non-syncope by asking it when, what they remember and figuring out whether it was abrupt, brief, and whether they had spontaneous recovery. Um, if it was syncope, to then distinguish whether it's cardiac, reflex, or orthostatic, um, and to look for those clues that we talked about, and then to focus on that limited, smaller differential uh, by looking for the risk factor symptoms and signs. So um, I'm going to pause. Uh, Lord, would you want me to go through pearls and pitfalls, or do you want to pause for questions? How's it going with your chat? Yeah, we are doing great on time. Let's move forward with some pearls and pitfalls. OK, great. All right, so pearls and pitfalls. Pearls, the idea is you find you can tell somebody something that's uh, we're trying to tell you things that we've learned that are useful, and pitfalls are mistakes you don't want to make. So a couple of pearls here. I've already mentioned this one. I didn't really appreciate as a medical student, but people can have arrhythmias, blah, 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 arrhythmias that cause them to pass out, and but those could have resolved when you get there. So normal EKG, if they're no longer having symptoms, does not rule out an arrhythmia. Second, um, I want you to think about intra-abdominal hemorrhage in patients who present with orthostatic syncope and abdominal pain. So um, one thing I've seen several times in my career is people who presented with abdominal pain and syncope where they look fine, except for the fact that they're passing out from orthostatic hypotension and they have a lot of pain. This can be from a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, from a ruptured spleen, from a ruptured triple A. So if you ever see profound orthostatic hypotension and you say, I don't get it. The person's not dehydrated. They're not having GI hemorrhage. They're not on any meds that should do it. Boy, think about scanning that abdomen. Um, another pearl that we talk a lot about in our podcast and Adam teases me about is that um, you have to check orthostatic vital signs because despite life-threatening volume loss and life-threatening blood loss, people can have normal blood pressures when they're laying down and sitting and you have to stand them up. It causes blood to pool in their legs to show that profound hypotension. 
I had a patient with a ruptured ectopic whose blood pressure was totally fine sitting and down, but when I stood her up, she had no blood pressure. They proved this in a study of medical students in the 40s. I don't think you could do this in Oregon. We can't do this in Chicago, but they bled medical students in the 40s to see what would happen to their vital signs. And they bled them a liter and a half of blood. And here's what they found. They found that when they were laying down, only 12% of those students were tachycardic and only a third were hypotensive, despite losing a liter and a half of blood. But when they stood them, 97% were either hypotensive or had an increase in pulse of 30. So again, when you're evaluating for somebody for syncope and you decide they have syncope, check that blood pressure and pulse when they're sitting, stand them up, check it again. Do it yourself. Don't ask the nurses to do it. Just do it. It takes one minute. Okay. Uh, another pearl that many people don't appreciate is you do have to consider pulmonary embolism in patients who have syncope of unknown cause, particularly cardiac syncope of unknown cause. A study was done that showed that if you looked at patients who'd been admitted to the hospital for syncope of unknown cause, which was thought to be cardiac, but they couldn't figure out why, 17% of those patients actually had a pulmonary embolism. And the shocking thing was that 25% of them had no other symptoms or signs of pulmonary embolism. I mean, you would think, you'd be wrong, but you would think if you had a PE large enough to make you pass out, so it's blocked the pulmonary artery with a saddle embolus, and then luckily enough for that patient, it broke up before they died. You would think that that patient would have chest pain, shortness of breath, and everything else, but shockingly enough, sometimes they don't. So if you get someone and you say, hey, boy, this wasn't reflex syncope, it wasn't orthostatic syncope, it's cardiac syncope, but I have no idea why, you need to test them for pulmonary embolism. Um, and as I've already mentioned, if you have an adult who's lost consciousness and has a real lapse in a long time period, when they've lost consciousness, you need to think about a seizure. I did mention briefly tonic-clonic activities. It turns out that witnesses are not very good at reporting whether or not people have had tonic-clonic activity. And many people, when they have syncope, not seizures, but syncope will actually twitch a little bit from myoclonus as they pass out. So I like to ask a lot about what the patient remembers next. And if there's been a long period of time, I think they might've been post-ictal. Okay. Um, this is a slightly different pearl. And this is probably the most common mistake that uh, young clinicians make, which is you've been worked very hard. You've memorized all the signs. Almost never rule out a diagnosis when the patient doesn't have them because they're almost never very sensitive. On the other hand, when they have those signs, they're often very specific. And you put that together, it means I want you to pay attention in your diagnostic reasoning to what you find, not what you don't find. So if somebody has something, pay a lot of attention to it. If they don't have something, don't rule it out. Here's the data. Years ago, I put together all the data on 101 diseases of the classical signs and symptoms. And here's how the, the bar graph of how sensitive the various findings were for those diseases. Note that only 20% of the findings were over 80% sensitive, and that 80% of them were not very sensitive and couldn't rule out a disease. Let me give you an example. We talked about pulmonary embolism. Here are some common symptoms and signs you might think of when somebody has pulmonary embolism. Maybe they'd be short of breath. Maybe the shortness of breath would be sudden. Maybe they'd have pleuritic chest pain. Surely they'd be tachycardic. And if you thought that, what you'd find is you're wrong. That yeah, you know, anywhere from 59 to 85% of patients in different studies were short of breath with a pulmonary embolism. But reverse that. That means that 15 to 41% weren't short of breath. It means that roughly half of them didn't have chest pain. It means that roughly half of them weren't tachycardic. So you cannot use signs and symptoms to rule out diseases like you think you might. And this is true for disease after disease after disease after disease. Um, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that the findings aren't worth looking for because when you find them, many of them are very specific. So if you, you had a patient with short of breath and they have an S3 gallop, they may not have it often, but when they have it, it's 99% specific and it's 60 times more likely that they have heart failure than another diagnosis. Okay, just a few pitfalls and I'll wrap up for questions. Um, it's often done that people will get at carotid ultrasounds in patients who had syncope, you shouldn't do it. Carotid stenosis and carotid obstruction does not cause syncope because it causes unilateral loss of blood flow, and syncope occurs when there's global loss of cerebral blood flow. So don't do it. It can cause a stroke. Carotid stenosis can cause a stroke, but it won't cause syncope. Another important pearl is that if you evaluate patients who are hemorrhaging and passed out, the CBC can still be normal. 
it's still normal because they're bleeding whole blood and what they're leaving behind is whole blood. Until you dilute it with saline or they dilute it with drinking fluids, the hematocrit and the hemoglobin, which are concentrations, don't change. So don't be misled by that person who's having abdominal pain and passing out and has orthostatic hypotension and say, you know, CBC is normal, he can't be bleeding. That's completely wrong. He absolutely could be hemorrhaging. Um, okay, some resources. If you're interested in this, we do have the textbook we've mentioned. It's also available on Access Medicine. Many medical schools, I think almost all of them in the U.S., um, uh, have a subscription to that. And then you could get, you could look up whatever you want free. And we did do the podcasts that Laura mentioned, which are available in several places, including Apple. So I'm going to stop there and open it to questions. Um, and we can go from there. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Stern, uh, for a, a fun and equally informative talk. And thank you, Dr. Clavin, for joining us. I know that you are here with us in the audience online. Um, we'll start with a couple of questions. Um, so first off, um, regarding this approach to diagnosis, um, we have a question here. With desire for rounds to run efficiently and high patient census, we often don't have time to go through this wonderful thorough system regularly. Do you have a quick version of this system or a highest yield skill that you can sometimes point out to a learner in a minute or two during rounds? Um, you're, you're, it's, it's absolutely one of the, when I said there's lots of problems with medical, medical education, this is front and center in them, is that we have to provide clinical care in a fast environment at the same time that we're trying to teach, so it's very difficult. What we're trying to do at the university is actually insert a course like this between the preclinical years and the clinical years so that we can teach these concepts before people hit the wards, frankly. Um, it's pretty hard on rounds. It depends on what the nature of the symptom is. So for syncope, you know, for loss of consciousness, it was two pivotal points. But for some of them, like hyponatremia and others, it can be several pivotal points that really is tough to do on rounds. Um, so sometimes you have to come back to it. But I, I think the place for this in the educational arena is it deserves its own special place in the medical schools, frankly. Uh, where we do it. The other way I think we could do this in the medical arena is hard to fund, which is we have an elective that we've run here, but had to stop because of money where we put an extra attending in urgent care who works with just the students. And because they're extra, they really do have the time to focus on what the students are seeing, talk them through it, evaluate the patient and so on. But that that's obviously very resource intensive. Great, thank you for your thoughts. Um, we'll pivot to a next question here. For the wide, wide range of possible illness presentations in many different types of medical areas, for example, joint pain, um, isn't hunting and pecking for an algorithm similar, although vastly better, to the problem of hunting for individual diagnoses? What is the solution to that? Sure. So um, the way people often refer to this is illness scripts. And so each disease, if you think about like pulmonary embolism has its illness script, but they actually have many illness scripts, right? So pulmonary embolism can present with sudden shortness of breath, somebody else that presents with sudden chest pain, and somebody else that presents with syncope, and somebody else that presents with chronic shortness of breath, believe it or not. So if you start trying to hunt and pack for all the illness scripts, you're dealing with an unbelievable number. So um, versus if we do the symptoms for internal medicine, there's really about 25 of them that cover it. You could probably even get by with 15 that are going to cover 80 to 90 percent of the problems that adults come in with. And so um, I think it's a much more if you can get um, and we've tried to make these approaches simple enough that you can put them in your head. So I know we're not programming computers and 20 years ago when I started this, um, our algorithms were so complex that you'd almost have needed, you know, um, Google Maps to find the diagnosis you were looking for. But we've learned over time as educators how to do this better, frankly. And so um, now you could learn, you know, 15 or so algorithms and be able to navigate your way through. Uh, and that's a much shorter list than all of the illness scripts. The other thing is, if I can add one more thing to that, is um, you are gonna see for the rest of your life things you've never seen before. I've been attending for 30 years, and when I'm on general medicine, I still see things I've never seen before. And I've even seen things that have never been reported before, weird presentations of diseases. Illness scripts are never gonna work for all of that, never. 
The way we have found them out is by having a systematic approach and saying, you know, this problem has to be located here, given these three points, and we're going to look right there and sometimes found some astonishing diagnoses. And I've had residents out diagnose seasoned clinicians because they took the systematic approach rather than the pattern recognition approach and found pituitary tumors and other problems. Great, thank you. That's incredibly helpful. Early in your talk, I was thinking to myself, how does one develop the pivotal concepts? Um, thank you for doing the work for us. <laughs> well, yeah, the way just to answer that a little bit, Laura, we we um, what we did was we go through for all of those diseases in the book, we went through the signs and symptoms uh, and lab tests for every single one of them with Ovid searches. So thousands and thousands of articles to actually decide that we had the right evidence that those pivotal concepts were reliable. So it's not just like, let me get a drawing board. Let me think this through. It was based on a ton of data. So yeah. Great, thank you. And maybe just to build off that, I have a question here. I'm curious how you teach learners to leverage electronic resources for this process. Yeah, so um, that's a really good question. So electronic resources, we're trying to, um, uh, obviously there's textbooks and podcasts online, but I don't think you're talking about that. Um, there are electronic um, simulated cases that you can practice online. I don't think um, I, I am working with Healer. I think all of those still need work and are getting um, better, but that will be one way to practice it. Um, we can create interactive algorithms online, and I'm working on doing some of that on my own. Um, we can also just put the algorithms online. You can build lucid charts and things like that. And so there's ways to put tools into students' hands and residents' hands where they could literally click through and navigate it using tools like lucid charts. Um, and um, so we've done that as well. We also actually take pocket index cards and print these out on pocket index cards, make them really tiny and have the students put it in. They have a Rolodex, if you will, in their white coat, and they can all go up and flip through it. Great, thank you. Um, a specific point of clarification here, going back um, to your discussion of the study in which you were teaching the approach to medical students. Um, this uh, listener wonders how much time passed days, weeks, months between the one day training and the post testing. Um, how is a training effect avoided in this type of data contrasted with long term recall? And how do students access the algorithms in the months to follow? OK, so that's a really great question, and, and that would be a follow up. We would need to do a follow up study on that. So that was in days to weeks afterwards, not months or years afterwards. They were retested. And so, um, uh, you know, we have not proven recall. I think the best way, having used these processes myself for years, recall is reinforced when people keep using it. So I think what this shows us is that the approaches work and then for them to be stuck in your head, you need to use them continuously. So I now know most of these algorithms in my head because I've used them and taught them many times and it's referring to them frequently, like anything actually. You either use it or you lose it. Uh, the same thing is true here. Um, and the second part of the question was, how do they refer to them later? And then again, it's the combination of the text, the podcast, the cards that we give the students, The um, and like I said, we're building the algorithms online. Right, thank you. I uh, just want to call out a couple um, comments sprinkled in here, just commenting on what a wonderful and useful presentation this has been. Um, I'll see if I can unpack um, a, a comment and question here. Um, first off, great talk. Um, this listener notes, for older adults with serious mental illness, I often ask them for their own personal illness script. Um, because um, with diagnoses such as schizophrenia, they may have many presentations, but for one person, it is either their schizophrenia almost always, like past episodes, or it is something different. Um, and they question, have you ever thought of using this particular approach, particularly in older adults? Well, that's a very complicated question, a thoughtful question. So, um, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, so um, I would be out of my domain to address uh, psychiatric illnesses per se. Um, I do, I think that there is value, but also limitation in asking adults about what they think is going on. 
The value is one, they've thought about it and sometimes they're right. Uh, two is they may not be right, but they may be really worried about a particular diagnosis and you need to address that so that at least you can help to reassure their anxiety. The downside is I think too often in junior um, uh, folks, and actually not just junior folks, but others, is that we default saying, oh, the patient comes in saying they have the flu, they have the flu. People, have, even with influenza, people have no idea what influenza is. I've seen everything from pneumonia to diarrhea be called influenza by patients. So I don't, I think it's reasonable to ask patients. I think it's reasonable to think about it. But I would give you a red warning sign that says patients are often wrong and use medical words and they have no idea what they're doing. I had a patient recently who said he was having vertigo. He wasn't having vertigo. He doesn't even know what vertigo is, but he used a medical word and it'd be tempted to say, I'm gonna evaluate him for vertigo. So you need to be very careful with that. Um, I think in terms of applying this to psychiatric diagnoses, I think what we need is systems that are similar to this that are built by specialists in those areas. So I wouldn't do a pediatric one, even though I was MedPeds trained 100,000 years ago, I wouldn't do a pediatric one. We need people who are experts in those fields to do similar things to what we've done in medicine. Thank you for your thoughts. Um, this is an, an interesting and complex concept present, presented, and I appreciate the comment um, from our participants. Um, and I had been curious about uh, your opinion and approach with regard to asking adult patients what they think is going on. Um, perhaps building from that, um, do you have um, any particular pearls and pitfalls when it comes to the broader category of taking a medical history? Wow. That's that. So, <laughs> I, so I'll just think out loud on that one. So pearls. Um, one, pay a lot of attention to body language. Um, you know, one of the advantages of being in person with someone is sometimes body language tells you a lot. And sometimes they'll tell you what the patient's not telling you. So um, uh, I've had patients where you ask them something and you can just tell that something's going awry. That means that you've hit something, you know? So I think it's often true in our society that, that uh, we're reticent to ask patients questions that we think carry judgment with them. We might be reticent to ask them about alcohol or about drug use because we think that carries judgment. The reality is that we're physicians trying to care for them and without knowing what they're using or taking, we can't take proper care of them. Um, and so, you know, it requires a bit of, for lack of a better word, nosiness. If you don't bring um, judgment to it, if, if you're able to say, I don't care if somebody drinks, I wanna know because I need to know if it's affecting their health. And I can honestly say that, I don't care. Um, then I know if they react to that, that's them. And that actually is information. Um, now I have to be more careful with drug use because I'm more judgmental about that. That means I need to know myself. So uh, that's a second piece of information for you. Watch them, but watch yourself. If you're carrying judgment in, you need to be very aware of it. You know, no matter what comes out of your mouth, if you're judging the person, they're gonna know that you're judging them. So you need to really try to check that at the door. Uh, when you do that, because um, otherwise your interactions will be terrible. You know, I guess the other pearl I would tell you about this was the old Francis Peabody line, which is really, really true from Francis Peabody. Peabody is a very famous physician who was at Harvard in 1927, said the secret of caring for the patients actually to care about the patient. You don't have to be the smartest guy or woman on the block to take good care of people. You have to care about them. You have to work hard so that you learn it because no matter if you just care about them and don't know the material, you can forget it. Being nice isn't enough. But caring about them can often push you to the next step to say, I'm still worried. I don't get it. What am I going to do next? And it's oftentimes in those next steps that you find what the other two people didn't because you cared enough to figure it out. So that's kind of a broad question that I get to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank, thank you for taking a stab at a nearly impossible question to talk of its own. Thanks, Dr. Sure. Stern. Um, we are getting close to the end of our time. Um, I will hand you one more question here. Um, this may apply a bit more to the outpatient as opposed to the inpatient setting, um, but I believe we do know that for a significant number of presenting chief complaints, such as abdominal pain, um, a definitive diagnosis is not always arrived upon. 
Um, and I wondered if you could just speak a little bit about your experience with the balance between uh, what I might call diagnostic persistence, um, kind of sticking to getting to the answer, particularly if we use your approach of trying to get into the right bucket, um, balanced against uncertainty and perhaps uh, symptoms that remain um, unexplained. So that's that's a little bit of the art of medicine, frankly. It's knowing how long to keep going when the, your first couple of hypotheses don't pan out. Um, part of that can um, what some of the things that you can use for that are one. You certainly want to exclude life-threatening hypotheses before you stop. With almost any symptom, headache, abdominal pain, chest pain, you name it, you can't. There are some things you can't afford to miss. Make sure you address those. Second. Um, atypical presentations are much more common than you would think. So be, remember what I said earlier that signs and symptoms are rarely sensitive. Um, I learned this the hard way when I was an intern, when I had a patient who'd been uh, short of breath for three months and then I was working her up for asthma and heart failure and everything else. And the attending kept saying, how do you know it's not a pulmonary embolism? Well, in those days, we didn't have all the tests that we have now. Um, and it took me several days for him to convince me to go ahead and get a VQ scan. And then it turned out she'd had multiple pulmonary emboli. She'd never been acutely short of breath. She'd never had chest pain. She did not, as we say, read the, read the book. So you need to have a certain amount of humility when you say, I'm sure person X didn't have this disease because they don't look how I expect, because oftentimes that's wrong. I would also tell you two other things about this. One, avoid anchoring bias. Um, anchoring bias is where you decide that a person has a per particular condition causing their symptom and you're ignoring other data. So I'll give you a good example of this. We had a guy who came in with uh, severe back pain probably 20 years ago to the ward. She don't normally get admitted, but he was in excruciating back pain going down his legs. Um, and the most natural thought was that he had either spinal stenosis or sciatica and he got an MRI done and the MRI was normal, no problem. And so the resident said, well, let's send them out. And I said, well, what does he have? He still has excruciating pain. Right? It's not like he's got a little bit of pain. This guy is in excruciating pain. What does he have? And the resident said, well, he's got sciatica. And I said, from what? His MRI is normal. So that's anchoring bias where you're ignoring the data because you just want to believe what you think is easy to believe. The other thing that was interesting about him is he's a hematocrit of 28. So when you have objective data that doesn't fit, you need to follow up on that clue. He had no reason to be anemic. Something else was wrong. And so I said, why is he anemic? And the resident said, well, he's got chronic disease. I'm like, what one? You're telling me he's got severe pain. He's got sciatica with a normal MRI. He's anemic and you're calling him chronic, but you don't know what it is. That's not, that's when you know you need to persist. So objective data that doesn't fit, you need to persist. Um, another tricky thing is if you know the patient well, you might have an idea about whether they're very anxious or not. The trouble with that is, of course, anxious people also get sick and so sooner or later, they present ill as well, and so you need to be careful. Again, that's the last pearl I'll leave you with. If somebody never comes to the doctor, and in the first time in 15 years they've come in and they're describing something minor, you better figure it's something major. Because people who never come to the doctor, when they finally show up, it's bad. I'll give it at that. Great. Well, thank you for that and for leaving us with so much wisdom today. This is a wonderful tribute to the Portland Clinic Jeffrey Clavin Lectureship. Thank you, Dr. Stern, for joining us, and we'll look forward Thank to continuing you. to look at and use your resources. Thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. Pleasure to be here. Bye-bye.